Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today, we have another episode on kingdom questions. We had so many questions come in by you listeners. Thanks again for sending those in that uh, we're doing a, a, um, two parts of this and there will be more parts coming uh, on later on along the way as you keep sending those to me. Uh, again, that email is crobbins, C-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at seminary.edu. would love to get any questions that you may have for future episodes. Uh, but to get right into it this week and uh, what questions we have coming our way are kind of in the genre of, of the Jewish background and um, diversity questions within church and and how all of that fits together. So our first question is from Stephen Stinton, and he asked, do you think the early post-apostolic church lost Paul's view of Gen- Jew plus Gentile church? Uh, do you think the church became too Gentile? And why does there appear to be a disconnect with how modern New Testament scholars read the New Testament and how the patristics implemented it within their Greco-Roman culture? Well, that is <laughs> that is an exceptional, multi-layered question. So thanks, Stephen. Yeah. For that. Uh, he has to have had a lot of time sitting around thinking to be able to come up with that question. <laughs> but it's a good one. Uh, I, it's a very complex question. And it, it requires a lot of historical contextualizing and nuances and some guessing and some speculation. Uh, but I think we can ground some of our response in pretty solid information. Uh, let us say that I'm glad is, you have that information, by the way, because I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think that it is unquestionable that the Apostle Paul had a vision that Jews and Gentiles would sit together in churches, at table, and enjoy fellowship as a new family of God that included Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women, Scythians and barbarians. Paul just thought all the statuses and social boundaries that resonated throughout the Roman Empire would be transcended, not ended, but transcended in the fellowship in Christ. And uh, and I believe that Paul believed, I think that this is clear in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul believed, and let's just say he hoped that his fellow brothers and sisters in, uh, in Judaism would turn to Jesus as the Messiah. I believe that over time, Paul saw that this response was not going to be quite as good as he had originally anticipated. Now, I'm guessing there a little bit. But let us say that Paul, over time, realized, even in his own churches that he was planting in Asia Minor, centered as they were in Ephesus, and then as he got the churches going across the, uh, across the Aegean in Greece, from Thessaloniki in the north, all the way down to Athens and then out to Corinth, uh, that he saw that these churches were a combination of Jews and Gentiles, that there was tension between Jews and Gentiles. And so he writes to the Romans, anticipating what is happening there, knowing what is happening there, 
and reading it all in light of his already existing wisdom of bringing together people who were not like one another in Jews and Gentile fellowships. So I think already in the first century, it becomes clear that Paul's churches tend to be uh, Gentile lopsided. And even at Rome, uh, I would say that Paul saw the, the Roman Christians who were Gentiles looking down on the Jewish Christians. He already saw this going on, and he reprimanded them for that. So already in the first century, we're seeing this. And it's, it's obvious that if the gospel is going to expand significantly in the Roman Empire, away from the land of Israel, away from Jerusalem, it's going to become increasingly Gentile. And there were a lot more Gentiles uh, than there were Jews in the first century. So let's just say that demographically, the idea that the gospel would expand into the Roman Empire and remain demographically lopsided toward uh, people who in the flesh are Jews uh, is just an unrealistic expectation. So over time, an increasing number of Gentiles became believers. That's, that's my first point. The second point is this. It is a, a cause of deep sadness to me that already in the second century, and then virulently so into the third and fourth century, the church becomes not only increasingly less Jewish, and, and some of that is going to be explained by the fact that Jews did not believe in Jesus and then opposed faith in Jesus, uh, but it becomes not only a diminishment of the presence of Jews in Christian assemblies, but Christians developed an anti-Semitism that became vicious. And so by the, by the third and fourth centuries, we begin to read, I mean, it starts in the second century, we begin to read very disparaging remarks about Jews, about the Jewish scriptures, about the laws of Moses. And it, it is no wonder that the church became lopsidedly Gentile and then, because it was so Gentile to begin with, and because so many of them were educated in Greek and Roman ways, their natural categories were not from the Old Testament. They were not Jewish. They were not sensitive to the story of Israel. So increasingly, the Christian faith began to be captured in categories that were not organic to Jewish scriptures. And this has led uh, in the, you know, all of this was powerfully challenged as a result of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in light of and in the wake of the atrocities of the Holocaust, leading Christian scholars both to investigate more Jewish sources and at the same time to become increasingly sensitive to Jews themselves in our world, to Judaism, etc. So, in 1977, when E.P. Sanders wrote his book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, he put that book into a lake of increased sensitivity, into a lake of increased willingness to rethink how we have thought about Jews, and an increased shame for how Christians have talked about Jews in the past. So Sanders ignited a fire of sensitivity toward the Jewish faith and toward Jewish people. 
And as a result, we, uh, you know, I'm a part of this. My professor, James D.G. Dunn, uh, N.T. Wright uh, at St. Andrews, on top of many, many scholars in the United States and in Europe, uh, even in Germany, where there was less sensitivity probably uh, than in the United States to the Jewish questions, we, we have become increasingly aware of the Jewishness of Christian faith. And, to this, and, and at this time in, in the church, we find an increasing number of typical Christians who deeply appreciate the Jewishness of our faith and want to anchor what we believe in the Old Testament. And so I'm encouraged, uh, but I'm not uh, too sanguine about our progress. We still have a long way to go in our sensitivity to Judaism and to the Jewish faith and to understanding that Christianity, um, as some Jewish scholars would say, is a version of Judaism. This yeah. is an important observation. My professor, James D. John, James D. G. Dunn, spoke of earliest Christianity as sectarian Judaism. And that's an important observation, is that the earliest Jewish Christians saw themselves as Jews, not as some third religion, not as a new religion, but as fulfilled, true Israel. Uh, so, and, and that is where I think we need to begin and rediscover our Jewish roots, recognize that we are Gentiles. We're not asked to become Jews. We're not asked to become circumcised in the New Testament. But instead, we are asked to participate in the story of Israel alongside Israel as that Israel is challenged to believe in Jesus as their true Messiah. Mm, yeah, and if you want more on that, I'd suggest to go back and listen to Scott and I's podcast. Uh, we did a number of uh, weeks, months ago, about the New Perspective movement and, and tracing all of that. But Scott, I'd be curious, um, do you have any insights or thoughts on what maybe the roots of that anti-Semitism was and came from in the second and third century? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we know from the 2nd and 3rd century and 1st century B.C. that there were many Greeks and many Romans who were powerfully disparaging of Jews. Uh, and uh, we, have, we have some lines, say, from Juvenal uh, in his satires about what he considered to be uh, the funkiness and weirdness and oddity of Jewish faith. But we have plenty of evidence that already existing in the Roman and Greek worlds, in northern Africa, in Egypt, in Alexandria, uh, wherever Jews had gone and had spread out, Babylon, uh, you could find uh, resistance to Jews. You could find disparaging remarks about Jews. So there existed uh, well before earliest Christianity, already existing anti-Semitic tractates, anti-Semitic statements, and plenty of anti-Semitic perceptions. So uh, when uh, in the second and third and fourth century, earliest Christians began to speak disparagingly of Jews, they were borrowing from an already existing Roman and Greek and Latin hmm. um, uh, anti-Semitism. So it's sad, uh, but it's the reality. And, and it, in a sense, where the, the church failed there, 
led to eventually to the powerful and vicious and savage racism that one can find in Germany yeah. uh, with Kant and then into, of course, into New World slavery. Uh, when the church had an opportunity to embrace the other, when the church had the opportunity to tear down the walls of, of um, racism, the walls of, of the other, the walls of thinking that anybody who was different was wrong. Uh, I think the church failed. Uh, it failed to achieve what the Apostle Paul called it to. It failed to achieve loving your neighbor as yourself. It failed to achieve turning your enemy into a neighbor. And as a result of that, the church created a culture and a history that was, um, at, at its core at times, was racist and uh, was segregated from the beginning. And only, only the, in a sense, the Greek and Roman Europeans uh, had the truth. That's yeah. It. Yeah. And it, it's such a, you know, uh, a very important history lesson to keep in mind of understanding our our, our worldview that is downloaded to us from the culture that we're a part of and and how we have to to let all of scripture and um, all of what Jesus wants of us to be um, uh, to have that call us into question on on important things like this that need to be called into questions because it has grave implications. Yep, I agree. So, uh, all right. Well, we have a, the second question here from Jonathan Horseman, and he asked, I would like to request Dr. McKnight to address the subject of supersessionism. This is an accusation which seemingly is leveled at those who hold that there is now only one people of God, including both Jews and more numerous non-Jews. It seems to be used without any argument being advanced as to what makes supersessionism unacceptable. Uh, great question, uh, and uh, I don't know if if Jonathan has read, his name was Jonathan Horseman, is that right? Yep. I don't know if he has read N.T. Wright, but you can see N.T. Wright's frustration in his book on Paul with the accusation of supersessionism. And uh, let me say this first. This has become the knockdown clobber stick, the bully club. In New Testament studies, if you can call someone a supersessionist, you win. People will will back up into their caves if they're going to be called a supersessionist. So I would say that it is uh, it has become it's it's out of control and the terms are not being defined very well. Uh, but supersessionism, as a term, refers to the replacement of Israel by the church in the plan of God. That, uh, in a pluralistic world, this is the number one sin, is to say that you alone have the true faith. Well, in fact, this is exactly what Islam, many parts of Islam, I should say, not all of Islam, many parts of Judaism, and many parts of Christianity have always believed. I was not too long ago, I was with an Eastern Orthodox Christian who basically thought everybody who wasn't Eastern Orthodox was going to hell. So even within Christianity, we've got mm -hmm. our true supersessionists. Mm -hmm. So 
in a pluralistic world, uh, where all religions are true, or at least participate in the truth, and that no one religion is the ultimate true religion, supersessionism is the height of arrogance. But that sort of pluralistic mindset is simply inconsistent with first century Jewish realities, where you had people at Qumran who thought they were the true Israel. And you had people in Egypt, the Therapeutae, who thought they were the true religion. And probably the Pharisees thought of themselves as the true religion. And I would not be one bit surprised to find out that there were zealots who thought they alone were the true and faithful Israelites in the world and everybody else was going to hell in a handbasket. Well, then Christianity comes along and it begins to announce that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and that they must believe in him. So in a sense, you would have to say that Christianity, like Qumran, like perhaps the Zealots, like the Therapeutae of Egypt, uh, like other branches, the Pharisees, etc., of the Jewish world, Christianity saw itself as the true Israel, and therefore it had a, a level of what Tom Wright helpfully calls sectarian supersessionism, and that is they thought they were the true people of God within the people of God. So supersessionism then uh, has a historical meaning that makes sense of first century Jewish Christian realities, that I believe it would be fair to say that the first Christians were supersessionists. In fact, I had a conversation one day with a very good Jewish scholar who knows the New Testament well, who's an expert in Judaism, who said to me, Christianity at its heart is supersessionistic. Well, then you get people who say anybody who says Christianity is supersessionist is a, is a bigot. Mm -hmm. So now, now you have this, plural, this pluralism problem with even talking about the categories that make sense in the New Testament. And I think you see this struggle in N.T. Wright's uh, uh, two-volume book on Paul. He's struggling with saying, yes, I know what you're saying, but you're coming from a different worldview. In the first century worldview, supersessionism was the name of the game, and that's how you played with your opponents. This is how you argued with them. So I believe that it is accurate to say that New Testament Christians, the first Jewish Christians, the first Gentile Christians, were inherently supersessionist in that sectarian supersessionist way. Hmm. Uh, this leads to a major problem in our pluralistic world. At the level in society that we live, we want to honor freedom so that people can believe what they want. We want to talk about other faiths in ways that are respectful and at the same time, that honor the truthfulness of our own commitments to our own faith. You can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. To say that, therefore, he is ascended on high and he's the Lord of all runs against what, let's say, uh, Muslims who don't think Jesus was crucified or who are bothered by the crucifixion theology of Christianity or Jews who have deep uh, disagreements with the fact that Christians believe in what they would call three gods, the Trinity, uh, who, who believe that Jesus was not, in fact, raised from the dead, and who believe, in fact, that Jesus is not the Lord of all. People who believe that 
should be able to say that respectfully toward one another. We believe in evangelism because we believe Jesus is the Lord and he brings redemption. So uh, my experience with Orthodox Jews is respect and at the same time the statement that, yes, they think that most, uh, most groups of Orthodox Christians have some kind of supersessionism in them. I believe that we need to find a way not to be accusing one another of supersessionism any more than we need to, and that we need to find a way to be respectful toward one another while at the same time affirming the truth of what we all believe. Hmm. So, the, so there's, there is a way for us to um, not hold loosely our, our convictions that should be important from us as we you know, try to uh, apply the, the New Testament and our beliefs, as well as other people who, ha- who have different beliefs without, um, you know, w- with, with being able at the end of the day to have good conversation and, and dialogue yeah. and, and, and respect and, yeah, and understanding think, from different perspectives. Yeah. And I think that, that we learn this within, we should be learning this within the church as we talk to one another uh, who differ. Uh, we should learn this in, in our society, politically, economically. We should learn this in our society as well with people who have different beliefs. Mm-hmm. You and I are gonna, each of us is gonna run into atheists. Mm-hmm. We need to learn how to uh, have conversations without, without dooming them uh, to godlessness and to, yeah, I guess that would be a, a fair statement, uh, but but we need to learn how to speak respectfully with one another while disagreeing. That, to me, is the challenge. And supersessionism has become a bully club rather than a legitimate, uh, legitimate category that tries to describe the historical realities of the relationship between Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. I'm curious, do you think um, Paul in Acts, uh, when he has his sermon on the Areopagus, that... Uh, do you think that informs how the church can and should have the this type of conversation today? Well, I think it can. Yes, I mean it's only it's a it's a glimpse mm-hmm. of how Paul talked to people who differed from him radically, but I think what you see there is a charitable, um, an informed, and at the same time a firm disagreement that Paul had with the philosophers of the Greek world in Athens, uh, as he, on the Areopagus, uh, could look up at the Acropolis and knew that that was a powerful faith, religion, philosophy, that was well above him at that point. But he wanted to honor what they believed and use it as touchstones to lead them to reconsider Jesus and to think about someone who had been raised from the dead, which, of course, shook them to their bones because they didn't believe that bodies would be resurrected, that it was uh, nothing other than a spirit or a soul that that was moved into an eternal immortality. Hmm. Right. So I think we learned from Paul. Yeah. I, I think uh, on this one that uh, time and um, wisdom and respect and honor for people who have carried on these conversations for years. I, I got a book in the mail today um, by two authors by the name of George and Baker, 
on, uh, it's called, shame, it's talking about how we can minister in honor and shame cultures in our world today. Mm-hmm. The value of this book is that these people have done this. These two authors have been involved in uh, Middle Eastern and Far Eastern cultures, and they've learned how to deal with uh, people who live in honor shame cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to Acts 17. You can go to some New Testament passages and get uh, get principles and see things. But people who've had the wisdom of years and years and decades of this experience have plenty to offer as well as we seek to uh, grow in our wisdom of how to relate the gospel in our world. Yeah, that's great. So much of our, our conversation, both in, in the last episode and this one today, is, is learning to, to get along and yet you know, represent others' differences and, and, and figure out how to um, continue to grow in you know, what we're being called to as a community. And so um, as a final question, Becky Miller asks a, um, a good real practical way of, of being able to, how do we, how are we able to um, respect those differences? And so she asked, how do we keep multi-ethnic churches from being white oriented? Our elders are diverse, uh, two women and two men, each from different country. And our worship team and a small group leaders are diverse, but the two staff members are white Americans. As one of those two, I think our church still has a white American feel. How can we make our church's expression more multi-ethnic and welcoming for all? Well, the first thing I would say about Becky's church is, I mean, I would say there's nothing wrong with a white, uh, a white culture. I mean, uh, that's that's one of the cultures in our world as well. It's when it becomes colonizing, dominating, and uh, fails to appreciate the other and differences and, and brings them to the table that it, that it needs to be denounced or at least corrected. Uh, so and then I would say the second thing is I think her church is doing pretty well from uh, uh, from my experience in churches throughout the world. Uh, her church has some diversity in it. Uh, the the most important book uh, I ever read on this is by a woman named Corey Edwards, and it's called The Elusive Dream. And one of the fundamental principles uh, that I, I see in Becky uh, being transcended, and that is uh, the fundamental principles is that the dominant culture is invisible to people who are in the dominant culture. In other words, Uh, We often call this white invisibility. We don't recognize the whiteness of our culture because it is invisible to people who are white. That if you encounter an African-American in a white culture, they'll say, oh, racism or at least uh, white invisibility is completely present to me all over the place. That is a very important observation. So I see in Becky an awareness of 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 the culture and she wants to transcend it that's the first step i think mm-hmm. the second thing is uh it is it, I, I think we have to recognize the sheer difficulty of creating a genuine multicultural or um multi-ethnic uh and cross-cultural type church it is a huge challenge and my friend, Pastor Derwin Gray, one of our Northern uh, D-Men students, is working on this in Charlotte at his church called Transformation Church. And I think they're doing this very, very well as they try to create a multi-ethnic 
and multi-racial uh, church. So the, so the second thing is, is to recognize the difficulty. But I believe that one of the most important steps is, is, the, is, to, is to locate in positions of power people of other cultures and races. In other words, if you have five pastors and four of them are white and one of them is Latin American or one of them is African American, you still are going to have a white culture, even if you think you now have a multicultural staff. Mm -hmm. It is when you say we want it to be three-fifths non-white that suddenly things are going to change because now the dominant voice will not be white unless the one person in the room with all the strength of voice is dominating. Uh, but when you when you empower, it's in positions of power. It's not just people on the platform, and it's not just people who preach. But you've got to learn to have a critical attitude toward power in your churches so that you see where the power lies. Mm -hmm. And at that place is where we have to work and strive to create diversity so that different voices will be heard at the table. And when that happens... I think changes can begin to take place because then all of a sudden an African-American female is going to say, you know, that song you sing, uh, that is a white song if I've ever heard one. Yeah. I didn't even, how can it be white? Uh -huh. you know? Well, it is. That, that is not the kind of music or the kind of words that resonate with anybody that I know in the African-American community. That's where, when that person then says, we're not singing that song very often, we're going to sing this song that suddenly we realize that it's in the positions of power that we have to um, affirm and empower uh, diverse voices, then all of a sudden I think we can create a multiracial and multiethnic church. And this is something that, I, you know, I know you, you highlighted how it is, it is difficult. And, and not only is it difficult, but if done right, it, you know, it takes time. And it's yep. not a, a quick fix type of, of thing that all of a sudden this diversity begins to pop up and it changes overnight. But when done right and when done in the right spirit, um, I think the potential potential for growth and the potential for good and the potential for transformation is is really incredible and um, and such a, a beautiful opportunity to allow the kingdom to take root in that specific way. You know, I believe, Chaz, uh, and I agree with what you said, I, I believe that, that our churches uh, need to set goals uh, and they need to set the goals of reflecting the demographics of their church community. I, I remember one time a pastor came to me and was, was bemoaning the lack of diversity in his church, and he told me where he lived. And I said, what percentage of minorities do you have in your culture? And he said, well, it's less than 5%. I said, well, you know, it's going to be much more difficult than yeah. if you live in downtown Chicago mm -hmm. in, a, in a Latin American neighborhood uh, on the border of a white neighborhood and on another border of an African-American neighborhood. And then you have, you know, maybe a far eastern corner to the neighborhood. All of a sudden, diversity becomes a much more realistic uh, demographic goal. Mm -hmm. But I believe that we as leaders, I think we need to start with saying, does our church community 
reflect the demographics of our community, or is it imbalanced uh, in race and in, and in uh, ethnicity and in cultures? And that's where I think we need to start. And uh, so uh, that, that's a big enough challenge for almost all of us. And, and I pray that we will become more sensitive to that because that's the people of God. The people of God is diverse. It's not made up of just white Europeans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, that's how the kingdom took root then, and that's how hopefully it'll continue to take root now in our world, um, even as we look at, you know, global Christianity and and all of those implications. So, um, Scott, any parting thoughts or closing things on our discussion today? No, I I appreciate these questions. Keep them coming. I think that this is, uh, it's important for us to hear from from our listeners, uh, from you, and we want uh, we want to respond to those sorts of questions uh, to help create topics for future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining our conversation today on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Uh, make sure, if you haven't done so already, to hop on there and, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast from, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher, and uh, let us know what you think of our podcast and the reviews. We'd love to hear from you as our listeners. So, And we'll, as Scott said last episode, hopefully um, be coming out with more regularity on these um, podcasts now that um, we've settled into a little bit more of a routine. So thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.